I hope everyone is having a, um, a lichtiger Hanukkah, as they say. We do see the light at the end of the tunnel. When Fauci was asked, would you prefer to give two doses to 20 million people or one dose to 40 million people, he said, no, 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 I think we need to stick to the two-dose regimen. And uh, we see that after one dose, the um, efficacy is around 80, 89%. So why wouldn't you give 40 million people 90% protection in order just to be a purist and give 20 million people 100% protection? So, But I do see light at the end of this tunnel for the first time. And I haven't said that in 10, 10 months. Which brings me to our Parsha and the connection between Joseph and Hanukkah. And I had all Shabbos been preparing some Torah about the light of Shabbos versus the light of Hanukkah and the difference between it. Because my wife had presented at the Shabbos table, as she does always, a beautiful idea from Jonathan Sachs, which actually was comes from a sikh of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, wasn't his, uh, that the difference between the two candles, the Shabbos candles represent something inside the house, something representing the relationship between a man and wife, and something intimate, Judaism's inner light, whereas the Hanukkah candles used to be lit outside. In Jerusalem, they still are, but because of persecution, especially in Europe uh, and in Arabic lands, uh, they were brought inside until the Lubavitcher Rebbe in America decided to bring back the original spirit of the day. And so these two candles, the inside candles and the outside candles, represent the difference between the light of the Shechina inside and outside, and the negotiating light between them are the two wicks of the Havdalah candle. It was very cute. I, I have to say it was I'm based on, of course, the Sikha of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I want to take it a little bit darker, as you know me, <laughs> because um, we have, when we grew up and throughout our education, um, and my twin sister firmly believes this. The distinctiveness of the Jew among the goyim or among society and culture, uh, the message of Hanukkah is precisely that distinctiveness and distinction that has been at the core of our survival. And I'd like to question that today. That is, do we hermetically seal ourselves off and thereby survive do we assimilate or do we do something in between in terms of gradation? So we got to go to Joseph, uh, the most important figure in this fourth cycle of the Genesis cycles, as Fishbane calls them, the uh, primordial cycle, the Abraham cycle, the Jacob cycle and the Joseph cycle. And each one has a revolving center chiastic structure to them, literary-wise. So in this last cycle of Joseph in Genesis, this same dilemma, this same dilemma is played out in this patriarch's life. It's the version of the same dilemma as he rises from the pit, the prison pit, one after the other, to the height of power. From the pit from the brothers to the pit from Potiphar, to the second in the court of the land. And of all the dramatic moments that we will see in the next Parsha, 
is the gripping story of his reconciliation with the brothers who once betrayed him. Nothing is more poignant than when Pharaoh tells Joseph that he will have absolute power limited only by Pharaoh himself. The astute ruler had taken the measure of Joseph and realized immediately that this shrewd and perceptive Israelite was perfectly suited to the nasty work of gathering up all the grain of Egypt during the famine. And so he gives him two gifts that bear on what we're talking about today. Two gifts that can be read as a heart-wrenching example of the price you pay for power. Joseph will have an Egyptian name, Tsafnat Panea. By the way, the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, the, for me, the most important Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov, Yaakov Yosef, <laughs> his name was Yaakov Yosef, named his safer Tsafnat Panea. Interesting. The sustainer of life in Egyptian. And an Egyptian wife, Osanat the daughter of the priest, Potty Pharaoh. These are the two gifts he gives him. You know that Hitler had 400 generals who didn't fit the Nuremberg laws of 1933, meaning the racial laws, the purity laws. They had one eighth or one fourth or even a half uh, parent who was Jewish. But Hitler needed them for his purposes in cleaning Europe of Jews. And they were highly decorated from the First World War, and they were absolutely critical for the, for the, uh, for the, the German war machine. And so he went against his own jurists, the laws that had been put in by law of Germany as to who is a German and who is racially pure, and gave each of them a certificate of racial purity. He, as the supreme leader, exercised the Pharaoh's power to promote and to demote and to even re-legitimize the blood purity of these generals. It's really interesting. The story that follows that reads differently because the moves the king made to forcibly integrate Joseph into Egyptian society and culture and in verse 50 and 52, he names his two sons, showing us the pain of his situation. The fact that even though he was assimilated and in the court and everything else, the children, the two boys born to him by Osnas, Bas Potiphera, he calls the firstborn Menashe, because God has made me forget completely my hardship. And the house of my father, and the second son, Ephraim, because God has made me fertile in the land of my affliction. He feels what it's like to be a Jew assimilated in a non-Jewish society. And he has not forgotten even the pain suffered in his father's house, because when the brothers come to purchase the grain, he recognizes them, seeing them bow before him, remembers the dream in which they symbolically had done exactly that back in 42.6. And he has not forgotten his father either. When the brothers return home empty-handed, having left Shimon behind as a hostage, they tell Jacob that the man in charge of distributing the grain had asked them, is their father still alive? 
And in next week's portion, when Joseph finally breaks down in tears and reveals himself to the brother, the first question that comes out of his tortured mouth is, is my father still alive? So here's the irony. The survival of children of Israel is a secured paradoxically by this child of Israel who marries a goy, a shiksa, brings his family down to Egypt where he and they loyally serve a foreign leader. And the survival of the children of Israel in a later generation will be secured by another Israelite, that one from the tribe of Levi, Moshe Rabbeinu, who also marries the daughter of a Midianite priest who will lead a rebellion that liberates his people from Pharaoh. We're not told, told this literal story because we're told about Yosef Atzadik, how he resists Potiphar's wife's entreaties and seduction. Why? What's happened? What happened to the Midrashic mind that moved us away from this hermeneutics of assimilation? Had Joseph and Moshe not been at Pharaoh's home court, wise in the ministries of law and kings, skillful at magic arts beyond the capacity of Pharaoh's magicians, gifted with the right word at the right time, inside knowledge of Egyptian society and culture, had they not, despite all this, retained a strong sense of the divine mission, they would not have been able to perform the redemptive tasks assigned to them. And if we say that in contemporary terms, that a certain measure of assimilation was required for their success, as was a measure of resistance to assimilation. It's much more complicated than the way we were taught in yeshiva. You have to be an orla goyim and you have to maintain yourself separate and ghettoed and walled in. Contemporary Jews know from experience that this balance is difficult to cal calibrate and we have it across the spectrum, right? If you go to New York State or Canada to Tosh, you have Kiryat Yoel in upstate New York. It is sealed off. You have Vishnitz and you have Square Town. And you've got Borough Park to a certain extent. Just like in Israel, you have these ghettoized, anti-assimilationist places where you can completely absorb yourself without having to deal with the outside world. Corona has actually brought out that split in an amazing way. To what extent do I accept the assimilationist role and buy into the culture and science? And this has all been in history throughout, where Jews have had to serve Gentile kings and courts over the centuries. And by doing so, serve their people and their God. We don't talk enough about the Jews who served in the king's courts of Europe, who funded the wars of Europe between the kings, who funded them because they were allowed to lend money. They were allowed to be exempted from the laws of usury by the Catholic Church. And they served at the pleasure of these kings. From the poet and general Shmuel Hanagid at the Spanish court to Henry Kissinger at the Nixon White House, to the many humble tax collectors in Polish domains populated by the Ukrainian peasants. By the way, the Shach and the Taz had to deal with Shilas. This week we had it in uh, the Gemara and Psochim in the Daftiti where you can't have Hanor from Chometz. And where do we learn it from? Well, you can't have Hanor from, uh, from uh, Avodah Zorah. You can't have Hanor from a pig. You can't have Hanor from all these things. They, the Gemara tries to learn it out. And the Shach and the Taz had a Shiloh in the 1700s 
by those people working for the Porits, those Jews who managed the Porits' accounts, which included hog farms, and they would make a percentage of the profit. Well, you can't have Hanor from a hog or from the farm or the product of the farm. And they asked the Shach and the Taz, it's there in the Shailas and Chuvas, what do we do about the Anderad? This was called this this Polish name for the contract where the Jew received a percentage by managing the whole property. It was called the Andera. What do we do about that, right? So we have this idea that, that, that and, 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 you know, I have to tell you that on Friday, did you notice the names of the people called to testify before the FDA? <laughs> Who are the scientists? Bornstein, Bernstein, Shmulevitz, the, all the old Jewish scientists and doctors of making, deciding the course of the viral vaccine to be delivered to millions of people. I just couldn't get over the fact that they were all Jewish names. It was just beyond belief. I was chuckling. And at the same, same time, coming from Europe, felt that acute sense of discomfort. This notion that these, you know, white members of the committee are listening to the Jews give them advice about their own inner health, you know. There was some sense of acute discomfort because I come from that world where you wear your yarmulke in the house but not on the street. Now, I was blown away when I read the Chancellor of JTS, ex-Chancellor, who was an archaeologist, Gerson Cohen, very esteemed archaeologist, but who also took over the role of uh, Chancellor of JTS from 72 to 86. And he probed these dilemmas some 50 years ago. So I am just rehearsing what he opened my mind in a very articulate way to really think about because it's how I feel, you know, going through this Hanukkah and going through this pandemic and going through the role of Joseph in the literary, but not the Midrashic way. And he wrote a brilliant essay called The Blessings of Assimilation in Jewish History. And it was pilloried by the right wing and by the orthodox. You know, he's, he's, he's of course, uh, a seminarian, shall we say. And he took issue with the well-known Midrash and my teachers in yeshiva that attributes Jewish survival to the fact that our ancestors didn't change their names, change their language, or stop wearing distinguished clothing. Shelo shinu et l'shonom et malbushom ve'et shemo. Their names, their language, and their distinctive clothing. Someone uh, took in the future Belzareba to the Noemeli Melech for a bracha. And, he, and the mother says to the Nomelech, tell me, give me a bracha so that he shall be a big tzaddik in Yisrael. So she said to him, number one, the, the Rebbe said to him, make sure that anytime he makes a bracha, he holds a siddha. He reads it, the words. That's a Kabbalistic reason. And from then on, anytime, even he made a shahak on Yebivoro, the Belzer Rebbe, the Sar Shalom, would take out a tiny siddha and read from the siddha. The second thing she told him is never to look at any secular language, any secular work. And he was known never ever to read a newspaper or anything like that. And I think the third thing was not to handle Gentile money. Anyway, I, I thought that's, that's the extreme example of this thing. Don't assimilate. And Gerson Cohen notes that this generalization didn't hold for Jacob's grandchildren in Egypt. 
who according to the Torah took Egyptian names like Aaron and Moses, or for the later generations in the Hanukkah story, adopted Greek names like those of the ambassadors who Judah Maccabee sent to Rome, Jason and Eupolemus. They took Greek names. Nor did Jews refrain from interacting. The famous friendship of Rabbi Akiva and Antoninus, by the way, we don't know who Antoninus was. It certainly wasn't Antonio. <laughs> it was, must have been some Roman procurator. But Akiva goes to Rome. He is so friendly with them. And the Gomorrah recounts the back and forth between the two. Antoninus clearly knew Torah because he was asking Akiva, where do we know this? And where do we know this? In fact, by Mechiris Yosef, I told you this before, he says, well, did they get, did they get punished for Mechiris Yosef? And Akiva says, no. Well, he says, well, let's do it now. So he was a very powerful man. And Akiva ingratiated himself to Antoninus. And there are dialogues between the two, all from dressing like their gentle Gentile neighbors. And I am reminded of Rambam's personal soliloquy when he writes this wonderful confession in his diary at the end of his life where he has so much to write and so much to leave, but he just doesn't have the time. And he writes, and I have to go and dress and go to the court and minister to the sultan's family all morning. And in the afternoon, Amcha Yisrael comes to my home for potions and, and medicaments. And only at the late hours of the night am I able to write. Cohen forcefully disputed the claim that Jews survived only by remaining utterly distinct from the cultures that surrounded them. And so he asks for a frank appraisal of the periods in which Judaism flourished. And that will show that not only did a certain amount of assimilation and acculturation not impede Jewish continuity, but in a profound sense, this assimilation and acculturation was a stimulus to original thinking and expression and a source of renewed vitality. And for me, I've mentioned this many times, that it was in those periods of what I call the axis of Jewish history, and here I'm taking Gershom Sholem's global view of Jewish history, which I, I resist sometimes, but it's so delicious, you know, this axial diachronic views of uh, Jewish history versus the synchronic view. Looking at the axial age at the 6th century BC, the Hellenistic period, 1st century, uh, the time of the Mutakalims around the 10th century, and after the exile from Spain. These are periods of immense creativity, both from culturation and assimilation, golden age of Spain, blah, 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 but also the trauma of dislocation. So then we come to the lesson of Hanukkah or of the Joseph story or of countless episodes in the long history of our encounter with Gentile ways. And, I, and, and, and that's where I have to beg to differ with uh, all of, uh, Jonathan Sachs' uh, Oliver Sholem, who says that we live as Jews in public, bringing the light of hope to others. And when we live both together, we bring light to the world. And there's always two ways to live. All this wonderful, positivist, glowing feeling. But I'm not selling Judaism, so I'm just trying to get at the truth for my own, <laughs> my own recovery as a post-Holocaust Jew. And for me, it's precisely living on that knife edge that is the creativity. And the lesson of Yosef, the tzaddik, 
which makes him the tzaddik is what makes him negotiate that wonderful space of inner pain of having to deal with the outside world and outer mastery of the outside world is that if Jews assimilate completely, we lose our way and we, and we get lost with it. And if we don't wish to ghettoize ourselves or allow Judaism to become fossilized, we'll need to assimilate to some extent. It's that wonderful knife edge, not to the extent of Heinrich Heine, who said my only ticket into Western German society was my conversion. And not even as my father in Vienna <laughs> uh, learned how to negotiate being a goy in the classroom with the Nazi teacher, right? Without his yarmulke, eating just bread, without the food, you know, he made his own negotiations, right? And even in the prisoner of war camp in Australia, he was in the kitchen and he was trading with the non-kosher, you know, margarine and bread for, for mutton because they were swimming in mutton and it was very cheap in the outback of Australia in the, in the prisoner of war camp. It, it, everyone makes their own negotiations, you know, but that has meant learning to speak new languages and having to, the, Torah speak in those languages. And we have adapted customs and laws to new circumstances. It's interesting, after the First World War, I told you that when the Ostjuden came to Vienna, the Jews of Vienna had already learned how to behave like Viennese. They had a goatee beard, not a full beard. They put their pays behind their ears. They wore short jackets, not the long record. And when the, when the Ostjuden come to Vienna in 1921, after the famine, after the First World War, the Jews of Vienna are mortified by them. My father recalls the thicky fisticuffs in the Schiffschule. And my grandfather said, don't you dare daven in their minion. And, you know, there was this horrible resentment. And it wasn't just, you know, self-hating Jews. It was this sense that they're now bringing discomfort to our assimilation. We've learned how to negotiate that delicate space, you know. And when we see people in government wearing their yarmulkes now and walking around the White House with yarmulkes, Jews of America feel very comforted with that. They feel comfortable. The, the Chabad rabbi making the Christmas party, the Hanukkah party in the White House and lighting the menorah, you know, and I, they're coming from Vienna, you know, my father's town down, feel acute embarrassment by that. And that's wrong, you know, because America's a new situation. And I remember when Senator Lieberman would walk to the, to do his vote in, in, in the Senate, you know, I was filled with, with pride for that. And so, you know, at some times we have adapted customs and laws to new circumstances. And Chaim Soloveitchik, the, the son of the Rabbi Yoshebeh Soloveitchik, has devoted his life to looking at the way Shilas and Shuva throughout the last thousand years haven't been hermetically sealed from the outside world. The Shilas and Shuvas of every Posek reflect their struggle on that knife edge when they receive Shilas from Yidin as to how to negotiate that space between what the halacha is and what the, the exigencies of the time are. And he spent his life writing about that. We continue to draw lines that are at times squiggly and blurred and at other times razor sharp and to argue with one another about which kind of boundary is required. 
And I, I want to uh, relate a story because I only read it in the Yated, which I, I hate that paper. And yet there was a article by Rabbi Feitman from the Five Towns about his Rebbe, the Rosh Hashiva, as he was known, Rev Hutner. It was his 40th anniversary. He was my father-in-law's Rebbe. He, he was my Masada Kedushin. I had a special relationship with him. And at one point, Rav Hutner, and I'd like to read from it because it's, it's a direct quote. And he was in Slabotka and he was very close to the Talmud Muvuk of the altar from Slabotka. So if you think about the history of the Gaon Vilna and the whole Lithuanian yeshiva movement, uh, the Gaon Vilna's um, prized pupil were in Nigla anyway, was Rav Chaim who started uh, the Voloshan Yeshiva and the daughter yeshivas that came from it, the Mir, the Slabodka, the Chevron, and all the other daughter yeshivas were mirror images of this kind of new idea of university, the university of learning of Voloshan. One of them was Slabodka, and the altar from Slabodka was a, uh, the, the teacher of Rav Hutner. So he says, when I was in Slabodka, I was present in the house of the altar. When several other people were there, including Avram Grzegensky, our cousin, the author of the Torah's Avram, Mashgiach of Slabodka, and the altar's son, Avram Eliyahu Kaplan, who had just returned from Berlin. The altar asked Rav Kaplan to relate any good media he had learned in Germany. Something he, we could gain from the Germans. Rav Kaplan noted that there is an expression in German which impressed him. And I asked Naftali yesterday, who lives in Berlin, is it still used? When a person asks a question, even something very basic as, uh, where is such and such street? The answer is given and then they add the word nicht wahr, nicht wahr which means not so. You go down, turn right on Whipple and turn left on Kedzi. Nicht wahr? Is it not so? Well, that doesn't make sense. The guy's asking you for information. Why are you coming back at him and saying, is it not so? Assuming that he does really know or what? So Rav Kaplan lauded this semantically proper usage by claiming that it allows the one who is answering the question to include the interlocutor in being needed. I need you to respond to my information. Nicht wahr? What do you think? Is it not so? In other words, this is not a case of one person hopelessly ignorant. You are Oretz, you're a Gornish, you're nothing, you know nothing, you never knew anything. Or as they told me in my class, Unger, you know less than nothing. I don't know how that's possible, the engineers or mathematicians, <laughs> Alan, you'll have to explain how I could possibly know less than nothing. It's not the case when one person being hopelessly ignorant and the other being triumphantly knowledgeable. I have the knowledge. On the contrary, nicht wahr? Allows the seamlessly helplessly questioner to be as necessary and need it as the wise expert who knows the answers. And Rav Kaplan thought of everything he had learned in Berlin, in Germany, this was a sign of decency and gentility.
This is what he's writing a hundred years ago about Germany, decency and gentility. Now, a lively Torah argument then followed, and one of the Talmudim got very, very upset and displayed some arrogance and disrespect uh, to the Rosh Hashiva. And many years later, an old man walked into the Rosh Hashiva's house and said, do you remember me? And he said, yes, I remember you were a young man and we had an argument about Berlin and it was a very lively argument. And he came to apologize. And the man's apology and the powerful lesson was because the man insisted and said the following. Do you recognize me? Yes, you were present in the altar's home. He said, he took out his hand of, out of his sleeve and pointed to a prosthesis below the elbow, which was there instead of an arm, and said the following story. And I'm telling it, this story to you in honor of the 40th Yotzeit of Rav Chutner, who's, by the way, whose parish on Hanukkah, Pachad Yitzchok, is just outstanding, very much based on his time with the Radzina Rebbe in Borough Park that he used to steal to, not, know, not knowing. But I, and not only in honor of him, but in honor of what I'm just about to tell you, which schlocked up everything I've told you for the last half hour and pushed, me, pushed my, my, uh, my wane, uh, my, my barometer slightly back to the uh, anti-assimilationist. So he said, this is a mechanical arm. He shows him the prosthesis after the war, and which I needed after the Nazis chopped off my arm. And with every agonizing cut, they asked me, does it hurt? Nicht wahr? And I, when I read that, <laughs> I choked up. The gentility and the civility as they were torturing this Jew meant that Rab Kaplan's report to the Alta for Slobodka about the Nichtvar was wafer thin. That this gentility and civility uh, betrayed the deep underlying Wotan, as Jung called, that Wotan spirit of the Nazis. And so I leave you with the knife edge and the knife edge being that the lights of Hanukkah and the lights of Shabbos for me don't represent this wonderful positivistic view of the, the Shekhinah glowing inside the house and bringing it to the light. Oh, that's part of it. But the other part is that this light is a light that needs to illuminate us in our historical travels through time as a faith community, as an ethnic community, as an, a, a community that self-defines itself with some kind of moral purpose that we continue to unfold. And that that light both inside and outside the house is the same light. The lights of Shabbos and the lights of Hanukkah are from the Torah or Nishmas Adam or the light of the soul of a person that illuminates him and guides him along the knife edge of history as to how to negotiate that delicate space uh, between inside and outside, 
between assimilation versus staying alone and doing it alone and between uh, raising our kids educationally uh, on that knife edge between the two. Have a wonderful Hanukkah.